Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Welcome into a very special micro-series of the Endocrine News Podcast we're calling Endocrine in the Time of COVID. COVID has changed our world in many ways, and the field of endocrinology has felt those impacts too. The next several episodes of the podcast are going to highlight some of these changes from diabetes care to telehealth to health disparities and more. Because there's so much to cover, we're splitting a few of our interviews into multiple episodes. Some of you might like a one-hour episode, but I know more than a few who prefer an easier-to-digest size. Be sure to listen to the end to hear about an important session at the upcoming Endo Online 2020 meeting that I think you'll really enjoy. So with that, let's get to part one of our interview with Dr. Kathleen Dungan, where we talk about diabetes care in the time of COVID. Today, we'll be talking about what's happening in the world of diabetes care, and we're joined by Dr. Kathleen Dungan of the Ohio State University Division of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism. Thanks for being with us today, Dr. Dungan. You're welcome. Glad to be here. What do we know about the effects of COVID-19 on the patient with diabetes? Well, we are starting to learn more and more about this, and certainly there is a lot more, I think, that we don't know than what we do at this point. However, we do know that patients with diabetes are at higher risk for adverse outcomes, including death and hospitalizations. And we believe that that may be related to diabetes itself, glucose control, but also related to a number of other comorbidities that often coexist, um, like obesity, hypertension, other chronic conditions might be present like smoking and COPD, those are all um, risk factors that, that sometimes go together. And in addition, age is a well-known risk factor that emerged very early. And we know that diabetes is more common as we age. And so adding those all together does put um, that patient with diabetes at risk, not necessarily for contracting the infection, but for having more adverse events and severe illness. One of the key questions that we still have is, there a difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? So oftentimes, um, patients with type 1 diabetes uh, may be younger, they you know, may not have quite as many complications or, or comorbidities in their early ages. And so that's going to be a really important question moving forward. We don't have any idea um, yet whether hemoglobin A1C is a significant risk factor. That should be coming soon, um, but it does seem that some of the emerging data that uh, glucose control is an important predictor of outcomes. So as of now, we have mostly inpatient um, glucose control and sort of baseline control. So most likely um, A1C will be an important predictor. And we know that to be the case 
for um, any number of hospital outcomes. And we also know that inpatient glucose control in general can drive infection outcomes in other scenarios. So it's important to be able to implement glucose control at any time point, you know, pre-infection, during infection, although we are understanding that stress, the stress of an illness itself can cause hyperglycemia. So these are some ongoing initiatives that are being conducted to tease this out. In particular, there's a consortium that's being formed amongst a number of institutions. And if you want to learn more about some of the um, research questions and some of the latest uh, resources, one potential site that I will point you to is covidindiabetes.org being led by Emory University. How is the pandemic changing the way healthcare providers treat patients with diabetes? Well, certainly the pandemic has changed all facets of patient care, and that has been continuing to require adaptations um, almost on a weekly basis. So in the ambulatory sphere, we are definitely doing a lot of telehealth. Um, Diabetes is very amenable to telehealth efforts, and that is certainly not new to the care for patients with diabetes. What is new is now that the government has lifted some restrictions is that we can now bill for it. And so that has been a major, major change. We've also seen some concerns about whether there might be shortages in medications um, as a result of supply chain disruptions. Thus far, all of the insulin companies have uh, provided reassurances. Um, However, patients might have individual difficulties with access to medications. And so um, we're thinking more about using, you know, 90-day prescriptions, making sure patients have backup plans if they're on an insulin pump, for example, to have backup basal insulin and so other kinds of supplies. Counseling on um, sick day rules is something that I know personally I have really tried to emphasize. We um, are used to being well all the time, and when someone gets sick, they may forget some of those basic rules like ketone monitoring. And, and really, I think that needs to be done on a fairly systematic basis rather than just trying to remember at the end or waiting for you know the patient to contact us. In particular, in the last year, we've also seen, even in our patients with type 2 diabetes, some cases of, of ketoacidosis in uh, patients who are getting um, SGLT2 inhibitors. And so that counseling should be kind of ongoing so that patients understand what kinds of medication adjustments, what kind of adjustments in glucose monitoring um, would be needed as well. I've had a lot of questions, I'm sure all providers have, um, about what kinds of preventive measures um, patients should be taking. And now, more recently, the questions have been, is it safe for me to return to work? Um, Is it safe for me to go visit my kids? And that is always an ongoing process, learning how to do, you know, FMLA, um, you know, for, for many patients has been kind of new to them. And also to the point of 
providing some resources for advocacy. Um, I haven't had to do that very often, but there is, you know, some um, recourse for patients who feel that they're being asked to operate in an unsafe way. So from uh, the perspective of how do we manage patients who are going through an illness, we've also taken a look at DKA prevention measures, what we might be able to do if a patient has early DKA, for example. And we have actually shored up our triage processes and hopefully we'll be kind of rolling that out soon as well, just sort of in an effort instead of just making a knee-jerk response to a patient calling in with a high blood sugar to try to work through that than just to send them to the ER where they could potentially be exposed or um, at least have long waits in some places. And then as the pandemic has evolved, now we're trying to think about how we can now safely open back up and what kinds of procedures would be needed to bring patients back while safely distancing and also providing that safe distancing for our staff in the clinics. And again, thankfully, I think we have somewhat of an advantage in the care of diabetes in that we have that flexibility. We're not doing a lot of procedures. We are having to navigate the need for elective procedures, which have been put off. Patients have had their eye exams, dental exams, any other kinds of elective procedures postponed. And so encouraging patients to get back into that in in a safe way as possible. And then also more recently, as patients lose their jobs, start to, you know, really suffer some of those economic hurdles, how we can help navigate that in in some ways. And that's just kind of a natural, not a natural, but an unnatural progression as this pandemic evolves. In the inpatient setting, there are a whole host of other issues that come up from, first off, in just trying to manage and prevent hospital admissions if we can, Again, recognizing those early symptoms or signs of a patient who's getting in trouble from a perspective of hyperglycemia. Um, But then we shift to, now what is our role to help manage this ongoing PPE shortage or at least preservation of PPE and helping to minimize healthcare worker exposures. So that has really taken the form Um, at least at my institution, of a multidisciplinary support. And it started, I think, with uh, just trying to time all of the medication administrations so that they can be batched in one setting and the nurse doesn't have to go in and out of the room and and regown and reglove each time. We have struggled a bit with that because those standardized medication times don't align necessarily with the meal times. And those are the times that we need to be doing glucose monitoring, insulin administrations. So that has required some additional innovations, if you will. And thankfully, you know, the FDA has actually supported some of these initiatives. In terms of The patients themselves, again, um, recognizing that the patients with diabetes account for about 25 to 30 
some percent of those patients who are hospitalized with COVID. Uh, so a, a fairly substantial number of those patients are going to have a, a need for glucose management, whatever that might look like. Um, and some of these patients really do have a tremendous um, surge in uh, inflammatory responses that then result in stress hyperglycemia and a need for really large increases in insulin requirements. We're also thinking about what kinds of, of regimens that might be appropriate based on the presentation of a patient. And a number of institutions have implemented protocols for um, subcutaneous insulin in patients who have mild DKA or moderate DKA, for example, a Q4 hour um, strategy. And that helps to avoid the need for intravenous insulin in, in some patients who aren't quite as, as sick, and therefore the, the need for hourly glucose measures. Patients who um, are becoming rapidly ill who need intensive care, um, oftentimes are needing steroids and, and tube feeds. And so um, adapting the uh, institution guidelines, um, I think, is really important to, again, to align with other things that are going on, like administration times. In patients who maybe aren't quite as sick or, you know, maybe not quite as, as hyperglycemic, um, we have the benefit of some recent clinical trials that have suggested reduced glucose monitoring might be feasible in, in some patients. Again, these are patients who are needing less insulin, generally less than 0.6 units per kilo, and patients who are reasonably well controlled to begin with. You might be able to consider reducing the frequency of glucose monitoring using a basal insulin plus cytagliptin um, has been one approach. And in some cases, if patients are alert and awake, there may be opportunities for self-management. So whether that's keeping an insulin pen at the bedside and providing some telephone or, or video guidance by the nurse outside of the room or, or glucose monitoring, use of home glucose monitors. Again, that's um, something that is a complete no-no up until early April when the FDA released some guidance that um, suggested that would be acceptable in the short term as, as a measure to reduce PPE. And then finally, as we're developing all of these new guidelines and creating these, these alliances, determining how best to disseminate them. Um, if you look at our institution, we've got numerous wonderful guidelines, but they're changing frequently, and there's a whole list of them, and there's so much to keep up with. And so we're finding that we're having to support those guidelines by developing some decision support at the point of care. So if, if someone is admitted who has diabetes, what kind of regimen can we quickly get them to and, do, and, and um, have that, those types of orders um, pre-populated? From the, the dietary perspective, some of these uh, approaches will require more thought in order to sort of optimize a less frequent monitoring strategy, um, perhaps more considerate carb control. And then um, within the inpatient setting, we're also learning how to provide telemedicine. And that's been, I think, even bigger challenge because patients don't always have phones with them, or they might have a bedside phone, but there's no video capability, or they may not understand um, how to use bedside tablets. So that's been a challenge. We've tried to look at 
options for involving a bedside nurse or um, medical assistant. And um, more recently, some of the billing structures have changed to recognize the fact that uh, you can still provide really good care without having to always, you know, see the patient and, and, and take a, a history for the purposes of, of what um, we need to do to take care of diabetes in the hospital. So it's an, it's an ongoing learning process, and it, it's definitely required a whole team of, of multidisciplinary support. And we're going to leave it there for now. Be sure to tune in next time for part two of our interview with Dr. Dungan, where we talk about telehealth, CGM, and how diabetes care will be transformed even after the pandemic is behind us. If you'd like to hear more about COVID and endocrinology, be sure to check out the upcoming session of Endo Online 2020 titled The Impact of COVID-19 on Endocrinology. This session is developed in collaboration with the Endocrine Society and the European Society of Endocrinology and will be held on June 8th. In case you didn't know, registration for Endo Online 2020 is complimentary, so join the 18,000 who have already registered at endocrine.org. As always, thanks for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.